Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during this work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. What we're trying to do during these SALT Talks and what we try to do at our global conferences is provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And our guest today, we're very excited to welcome him onto Salt Talks. He's someone who has had an incredible career in business and is now leading uh, the state of New Jersey as a governor. And we're very excited today to welcome Governor Phil Murphy to Salt Talks. Governor Murphy, as he says, grew up in a family that was middle class on a good day. Uh, he was the youngest of four children with only one parent who graduated from high school. His upbringing, where religion, a strong work ethic, education, and civic awareness were pillars of his family life, shaped his values, his priorities, and the leader that he is today. Since taking office, Governor Murphy has focused on building a stronger and fairer New Jersey that works for every family. He signed legislation putting New Jersey on the path to a $15 an hour minimum wage, enacted the nation's strongest equal pay law, to combat gender wage discrimination. And he's ensured that all workers have access to paid sick days and expanded the state's paid family leave provisions. Governor Murphy restored state funding for Planned Parenthood and other women's health programs, including family planning services. He also made New Jersey a national leader in tackling gun violence and has expanded protections for the state's immigrant and LGBTQ communities, among others. Uh, nationally, he served proudly as New Jersey's sole representative on the board of the NAACP, the world's oldest civil rights organization, and as the finance chair for the Democratic National Committee. In 2009, he answered President Obama's call to service, and following his confirmation by the U.S. Senate, he became the U.S. Ambassador to the Federal Republic of Germany, where he served until 2013. He's a proud uh, product of the public school system, and he also holds degrees from Harvard University and the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Just a reminder, if you have any questions for Governor Murphy during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT and Anthony's tenure in government, as I like to say when we have other public officials on, not quite as long as uh, Governor Murphy's tenure so far in government, but we're hoping that maybe Anthony one day uh, can, can build on those 11 days he that he served in the Trump administration. You see how he starts out? Governor, listen, if you have a one-day program where I could be the comms director for one day so I can have an even dozen of days in public service, it's just something I'm going to throw out there. But it's, it's, it's great to see you, Governor. Um, I, uh, I, I know you and I both don't believe in fake news, but since I'm lying about my age, I don't want to let people know how far back you and I go. Okay, so it's, it's nice to meet you, sir, uh, for the first time. Uh, but, but in all seriousness, uh, uh, Governor Murphy and I go back about 30 years. It's cer certainly hard to believe. But let's take it way back, Governor. Uh, tell us something about yourself that we couldn't find on Wikipedia or from your very august resume. Uh, John Darcy, thanks for your introduction. And Anthony, it's great to be with you. You and I go back, as you say, over 30 years. Uh, and it's really, really good to be with you, um, virtually as it is. 
Listen, John said it, we grew up, we were in what you would call, I think, working poor circumstances. In other words, both my parents worked, we all worked. I worked under the table as a dishwasher in what we call a coffee shop outside of Boston uh, when I was 13, in the summer of 13 going on 14. So it wasn't that we weren't willing to work, we just didn't make enough money. Uh, but we were, and we were living on top of each other. But I gotta tell you something, uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Our, our kitchen tables were tight, but we talked about civics, politics, uh, uh, union leaders, Jack Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King. My oldest, I'm the youngest of four. My oldest sister would, would debate my dad about the civil rights movement or about the Vietnam War, uh, about the Catholic Church. I mean, there was a, it was an, an incredible and, and tight family growing up. And it's frankly, we now, Tammy and I, and, and you go back with Tammy over 30 years as well. We have, our, we have four kids and we're, we've been trying to replicate that same sort of ambiance, that same sort of atmosphere at the kitchen table since we've had kids. So uh, again, it's a, it was a, a great family upbringing and we're trying to do our best to uh, give the same to our kids. Well, I, and I appreciate it. And I've been to your beautiful home and met your kids and uh, they're, they're adorable people. God bless you for that, uh, Governor. Um, I want to go right into the COVID-19 situation. You've been one of the big leaders in terms of uh, explaining to people what they need to do from a public health and public safety perspective. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about some of the business operation restrictions and the potentiality of school closures and what factors are going into your decision-making on restrictions right now. Uh, I know that you shut down uh, youth sports, indoor youth sports temporarily until January 4th. Where do you think that goes? What factors will go into the decision of potentially reopening? Uh, just let us into the inner sanctum of your thought process and your team. Yep, all good questions. Um, just to step back as context, and people know this, but New Jersey, New York, Connecticut got clobbered early on. You know, we've lost well over 15,000 lives, um, uh, and, and we were able to, and we were scrambling. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. The country was scrambling, and we certainly were in this region of the state. Uh, we beat the curve down with the help of millions of New Jerseyans, and we had a relatively peaceful summer. Remember, Anthony, we were doing most of our living outdoors where the virus is a lot less lethal. Uh, we get back to school, you get some religious holidays, the weather gets colder, pandemic fatigue goes up, you begin the, the sort of the one after the other holidays of Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Advent, Kwanzaa, Christmas, New Year's, um, the epidemiological curve then surges again, and we are in the thick of it again. Um, and you know we're we're printing five thousand or more cases a day. People sadly are dying. Our hospitalizations are up. Um, and I will just say this: it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, the the very bad news is the next couple of months I think are going to be lousy uh, in all the metrics we look at and all the sacrifices we're going to have to make. The very good news is these vaccines are real and they're coming and they're coming soon. So we're gonna be light years in a different place by the spring. So we look at a number of, when we see transmissions, we try to be surgical. In the spring, we had no choice. We were at the edge of the abyss. We, we didn't know if we were gonna run out of hospital beds or ventilators. So we had to shut the whole place down. I don't anticipate that, Anthony, now. Is it a possibility? Yeah, it is. 
but we're trying to be much more surgical. So we saw, for instance, I'll give you two examples. Indoor dining, late at night, people got sloppy. Uh, the, the, the restaurants, not all cases, but many cases started to look more like clubs. Uh, bar seating in particular was a source of transmission. We said, okay, after 10 o'clock, you got a shut on indoor dining. Uh, likewise, you mentioned youth sports. We're seeing transmission, not necessarily in the sport, but in the adjacent activities, whether it's locker room, uh, convening for pizza in the basement afterwards, whatever it might be. We put a temporary halt December 5th to January 2nd on indoor sports. I hope we get back and have an indoor winter season. Uh, the last thing I want to do, I've got four kids. They all play sports. I don't want to be the one that doesn't allow the high school senior to have that basketball, final basketball season or, or whatever the sport may be. So I don't think we have to shut the whole place down, but I have to say everything is on the table. Uh, and it's going to get tough. It's going to get worse before it gets better. You know, I think one of the things that you've done a great job of explaining, Governor, and I, I just want you to address is because you mentioned the hospital beds. Uh, some of my friends who are libertarians say, well, I know the risks. Why can't I just go out and do whatever I'm going to do? And if I get it, I get it, so be it. Uh, but I point out to them, there's only a, a million hospital beds in the United States. We have over 100,000 people in those beds right now that have COVID-19. And so how do we get that information out there? How do we get that level of community awareness out there so that we are saving each other and our libertarian idea of individualism is, hey, I'm going to decide to stay home to protect my family and to protect, to protect my fellow citizens. Yeah, it's hard and it's gotten harder, Anthony. Um, and that person that wants to do that, God bless them. Here's the, the, the other problem, not only can they get sick, but if they're healthy, it's less likely they'll get sick. They can still get sick, but it's less likely. But they can easily transmit the, the virus to somebody who's older, somebody who's got underlying health conditions. And they can, even with their own view of what a best intention is, they can infect someone. They can, God forbid, that, that person could get hospitalized or die. I, I think we have to plead, continually plead with the, the public megaphones that we have. Um, we've been able consistently to find common ground with the Trump administration on, in our hour of need on testing, on ventilators, on bed capacity. I'll forever be grateful for that, but I will forever bemoan the lack of a consistent national message that transcends politics. This, frankly, has nothing to do with politics. That, that was, you know what, this is what your behavior has to look like. You gotta, you gotta wear these, they matter, not just for others, but for you. Um, just a consistent national uh, talking points, consistent national themes, uh, policies. I bemoan the lack of that. I think we've suffered and paid a big price from that. I hope that will change, I anticipate it will change. But in some respects, the horse is out of the barn. It's much easier to have done that early on in the pandemic uh, when everybody was no. rightfully mm -hmm. unified in their fear, they just didn't know what they were facing. The passage of time has allowed too many horses to get out of the barn. And I, I, I worry that it's going to be hard to pull some of that back in. No, we, well, we, we've had public health and safety officials on uh, Dr. Vivek Murphy, who's now going to go on to be the uh, Surgeon General again, uh, did say it is easier to slow down the curve before it gets to that exponential hockey stick than it is to now bend the curve. 
Yeah. Uh, but with that, you're talking about vaccines, Governor. Uh, what is New Jersey's plan for rolling out the vaccine, including the education, to ensure the mass adoption of that vaccine? Yeah, I mean, that, that last point is a big one. Uh, we've got a big anti-vax block in our state, as there is in every state. Uh, we certainly have it here. They're, they're, they're unified and they are loud. Um, and by the way, not lately, Anthony, the past couple of months has been pretty much politics-free in our deliberations on the vaccine. But in the summer, into the early, sort of into Labor Day, a little bit too much political noise around the vaccines as it relates to the election. And there was some amount of noise. We probably still have some amount of folks who are recoiling from that. Uh, I personally think it's it, the vaccine development has been nothing short of miraculous. It's safe based on everything we know. So we've started a public campaign already. Uh, our aspiration is to get 77-0% of our state vaccinated. That's a, that's a reach, but we're gonna try. Um, our, we'll, we'll get uh, a first batch uh, within a week uh, if, if it goes well at the FDA for the emergency youth authorization. And we'll begin getting the Pfizer vaccine first and then Moderna. And each week we'll get larger and larger doses. We've submitted our plan. It's now fine-tuned down to literally where it's going to get drop shipped. Um, healthcare workers and long-term care Residents and staff are the first priorities, and then we'll go from there. Vulnerable communities, other essential frontline workers. I think, Anthony, by April, May, we have a wide availability to anybody in our state who wants a vaccine. And that, to me, is a complete game changer. So while we're, while we're rolling this out, and uh, I appreciate your optimism, I share your optimism, Governor. Um, tell us what... New Jersey is doing to help small businesses during the pandemic. And uh, I know you as a business person who is a, an incredibly strong business-minded progressive. Would that be a fair description of how you see yeah. yourself, Governor? I think that's right. I mean, I call myself a pro-growth progressive, which is a different way of saying that. Yeah, exactly. So what are we doing for these small businesses, sir? So they've been crushed. Uh, that, that's that's uh, not news, but that's a fact, especially the restaurant and hospitality sector. So we have cobbled together, um, I think, frankly, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back because the small business experience this year has been awful, but I'd put our record up against any American state. Um, we have put grants, loans, literally uh, capital, into, I think at this point, 35,000 small businesses. The overwhelming amount of those funds have come out of CRF or coronavirus relief funds um, that we have deployed into small businesses. Um, and so we've gotten, as I say, to 35,000 or more. I speak to these business owners all the time. It's been a godsend, a lifeline, but, and the big but is we need not just a vaccine, but we need multiples of that. And that gives me the opportunity to get on both these and beg for a big federal stimulus bill. You and I were texting back in the spring. Uh, I had seen you um, on television and you were, you know, in the, as I recall, the $3 trillion neighborhood. 
I continue to think this is a $3 trillion moment. Yeah. Uh, it's not a $900 billion moment. I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for folks coming together. And uh, believe me, I'll take it. But uh, we need more. And if you're unemployed, if you're a small business, if you're a restaurant in particular, if you're a state that's got to you know, keep a budget and, and keep employment of frontline workers who are delivering services or local budget, the local governments, at so many levels, we still need a big federal moment that meets, meets the moment uh, that this pandemic has presented us. Well, I, you know, I appreciate you remembering that, Governor, because uh, John Dorsey and I did the economic analysis and these stimuluses need to be way bigger. Just imagine if we had a homeland invasion of a sovereign government with its army that killed 280,000 Americans, was killing 2,000 or 1,800 Americans a day, but wounding 150 to 200,000 Americans. What type of response would we have from the government? And that gives you the sense for the scale that I think we need, and I agree with you. I want to talk a little bit about uh, what's afflicting not just the state of New Jersey, I would say the Northeast, it would also be California. It is the tax changes that took place in, uh, in 2017 with the salt tax uh, reduction and also now the, the pressure on the states uh, and uh, the new taxes that you've had to impose to try to help uh, close the deficit there. We are seeing some predictions of migration uh, our old employer, Goldman Sachs, as an example, where you were once a partner, considering moving the wealth management business or the asset management business of South Florida. What are your thoughts on all this? What are your predictions about the potential migration? And how do you plan to keep businesses and workers in the state of New Jersey? It's funny, when I, when I heard, was listening to John Darcy in your introduction, and I, I, when I see your name and I see SALT, Beside you, I think always they got to come up with a different name on the on the cap on state local tax deductions. Uh, uh, so you're 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 uh, you're hit by in a drive-by shooting innocent bystander. Right. Um, listen, we're going to continue to do everything we can to get that cap lifted. Let me just say that specifically. Uh, uh, it's 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 damaging as heck, uh, and it's not just New Jersey, but it, it it's really. It's, it's crushed us, um, and, and I, I didn't like it, I don't like it, and I won't, I'll continue to do everything I can to get it lifted. Um, and so that's just a specific answer to that. I think it's a, it was a huge blunder um, as, a, as a federal tax policy. Uh, and it happened, uh, uh, you know, it happened before I got here. So I got elected in November of 17. That happened in Washington in December of 17, and I was sworn in in January. Uh, of 18. Um, having said that, um, we bill ourselves as the number one state in America to raise a family. And it's my job to make sure that folks see the value in what they, in what they pay, and what they get back for that. So we have the number one public education system in America, two years running. We have the number one or two, depending on which metric you look at, healthcare system in America. We have the, uh, the highest number of PhDs and scientists per square mile of anywhere in the world. We have a location second to none. So when I sell New Jersey, I was at a state visit in India last year, feels like 20 years ago. When I sell New Jersey, I sell two words, talent and location. And that's, if you look at our administration, that's where our overwhelming amount of our investment has been, uh, including in a dire fiscal 
budget reality that we're going through right now with ring-fenced education, workforce development, uh, higher ed support, uh, as well as infrastructure. Today, Anthony just was outside across the street at Newark Penn Station talking about the beginning right now of rehabilitating and bringing back to life the beautiful, what was the beautiful Newark Penn Station, seventh busiest uh, rail station in America, uh, which has been let to, left to go for far too long. So we're all in on that. The pandemic has had a wrinkle, I have to say this. So in other words, if you're working and you've got kids who want to get ed educated, we want to be either a state or the state of choice for your quality of life, school, convenience, commute, uh, commuting, healthcare, you name it. The pandemic has added a dimension to this, which is fascinating. And you've seen this. You see uh, a lot of folks rejecting a, a vertical work environment or a vertical living environment or an urban environment, period. And then not, in fact, going to South Carolina or Florida, particularly if they've got kids that they want to get educated, and particularly if headquarters remain in New York or Philadelphia. And by the way, I do nothing but root for the success of New York City and Philadelphia because in so many respects, as they go, we go. But this whole notion of I want a backyard, I, I'm working from home at least for another six months or a year, I want to get my kids educated, uh, we have seen an enormous influx of people into New Jersey, particularly in the metro New York and metro Philadelphia counties. Houses are flying off the market. Again, is it temporary? Is it permanent? I'm not smart enough to know. And again, we wish nothing but success for the New York and Philadelphias of the world. Uh, but that is a dimension that if you and I were talking nine months ago, uh, we still had a lot of people coming here, but the, the acceleration is really, really striking over the past nine months. Well, you know, I, it's not going to surprise you, Governor. I don't talk to the president anymore, but when I was talking to him and we brought up the tax situation, I don't see this as a blue state or I just want to fortify some of the things you're thinking about. What I said to President Trump is that these states are the fountain of innovation and economic growth for the entire country. And so that tax policy depleting those states, uh, causing a migration of intellectual capital, uh, you're going to have a domino effect into the rest of the nation that you're not going to like. Uh, because those states are equipped to handle the influx of immigration and all the great intellectual capital that springs from immigration. Uh, needless to say, he didn't agree with me, but I just thought I would point that out. Yeah, no, listen, that's a, a well, as usual, a well-reasoned argument, and I agree 100% with you. We've got to be careful with this economic innovation, particularly with those blue states having the safety net is so important for those states. Um, I have two more questions before I turn it over to John Darcy, who is going to try to outshine the two of us, Governor. So uh, you got to turn it up a notch because I don't want Darcy coming in with all that millennial youth and no, trying no. to power us, okay? But we we got to channel uh, Tom Brady and Drew Brees and uh, Aaron Rodgers and some of the older exactly. Lions who are still on the field. Exactly. That's what I'm all about. So the, uh, I guess, you know, we got 74 million people that voted for President Trump. Uh, I guess because I voted for him in 2016, I'm, I, and I've, I've had my uh, expiation of explanation there. 
Uh, but I'm worried. I'm, I just can be very candid about that. Um, those 74 million people are not deplorables. They're not racist. They're not uh, what people, you know, you grew up with those people, sir. I grew up with those people. I started, my parents were not educated as well. And I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood. What do we say to those 74 million people? Uh, why, why are they supporting him? And what can more benevolent politicians do to better communicate to those voters to bring them back into the fold uh, where they don't feel as left out or as President Trump described uh, this uh, weekend as victims in our society? What do we do? Yeah. I mean, the number is just, we adore that number, Anthony, at our peril. As a nation, certainly as a Democratic Party, but as a nation, we ignore it at our peril. Those are people who are screaming out for help, in my opinion. Um, they've been victims of probably any number of mega trends that have swept through our country and the world over the past couple of decades. You know, on my list would be trade policy, um, shifting as a somewhat, if not largely related, shifting of manufacturing in the world, uh, technology, uh, to pick some mega trends. And these folks are screaming out, uh, they want help. And, and President Trump or candidate Trump in 2016 said, I'll be that guy. Um, I think it is striking in a re-election that he got more votes. We ignore that at our peril. Even if we question, as I do, whether or not his policies, in fact, helped or impaired their lives, he was able to convince them uh, to the tune of 74 million people that he was their guy, not just the first time, but the second time. And that to me is more, far more relevant than what he did in 2016, right? Because he's got, in 2020, he's running on a four-year track record. And so I think it's, it's got to be a moment of reckoning for our country and certainly for our party. I do think if we were to have from central casting a guy who's elected from our party, at least as president, who has lived that life himself, who's grown up in it like you and I did, and I think more, even more importantly, has, has led by example in now what is almost five decades of public service, I think we, we couldn't have, again, I'll say selfishly as a Democrat, but I think as, a, as America, a better incoming president than Joe Biden. But I think this has got to be all in on, on an economic program that is real, that, is, that includes workforce development, um, that looks around the corner and gets out ahead of the next mega trend. In other words, that not only are we dragging, being dragged by the trends that have swept through us, like trade and an exodus of manufacturing, huge hurt among our farmers. Uh, I, I, by the way, I'm governor of the Garden State, and even though we're the most, uh, the densely, we're the densest state in America, we still have a proud agricultural industry, and they have suffered. Um, I just think we need a whole new, um, what is it? What is it right now in America like to be in a working family, particularly a working poor family? And what are the steps we can take together, parking the partisan stuff at the door 
that goes directly into helping these people's lives get better. And I think this has got to be an all-in moment. Well, well, well said, Governor. My last question, uh, from 2009 to 2013, you served with great distinction as the U.S. Ambassador to Germany. Um, how would you describe our alliances right now in Europe and across the world? And what would your recommendation be to the Biden administration in terms of your observation, your firsthand observation of those alliances? The alliances are without question frayed. Uh, they've been damaged, but they're not destroyed. Um, I also, I'd love to think there's a light switch that can be applied to getting those alliances immediately back to where they need to be. Uh, but I think that's naive. I think it will take time. And I think both, uh, Anthony, these are both bilateral alliances, such as the U.S.-Germany, but also the multilateral organizations like NATO and the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, et cetera. The other observation I would make is, and I know Joe Biden knows this in his team, which is an outstanding team. Uh, it's not, it's not just your, it's not just your father's Oldsmobile anymore. It's not 2016 anymore. You have to account for the four years that have interceded, good, bad, and otherwise. Um, and by the way, I'll, I'll give you one example where I've, I've been uh, thematically with President Trump, and that is that China can't have it both ways. Uh, I, I have not liked the tactics. I've not agreed with his tactics, but the thrust of making China play by the rules uh, was, was, uh, was the right intention. Um, I think the execution is where there was a, a challenge. But I want to see strengthening, um, and, and I think you'll, you'll get the symbols as well as the substance very early on from, from who will be then President Biden, uh, strengthening in the transatlantic relationship, strengthening our engagement with NATO, and then strengthening the particular alliances with our, our best allies. Germany, high on that list. Angela Merkel, so many things in the world change. Uh, it turns out over the past 15 years, the one thing that does it is Angela Merkel. Uh, and that's where I would start. I'm biased, obviously, I'm a big fan of hers. Uh, but we got to get back at it. We're, we are stronger. And by the way, last comment, we wouldn't do what I've just said because it's nice to do or it's good for them. What I've just suggested, strengthening those relationships and alliance is in our cold-blooded national selfish interest. And that's why we should do it. You know, when I travel to Germany, uh, Governor, uh, the joke in Germany is schoolboys say all over Germany, is it possible for a man to become the leader of this country. That's what they ask in Germany. So, <laughs> uh, and time so, will tell. Yeah, time will tell. Exactly right. And so with that, I'm going to turn it over to my least favorite millennial. Okay. There are many millennials you, on my list that are higher than you, John. I'm just kidding. I probably deserve that for all of the torment that I give you on these salt talks. But it's all, uh, it's all, it's all good. Okay. Go ahead. Fire away at the governor. Yeah, just a personal anecdote, Governor. Uh, my wife's family's in the real estate development business. Additionally, uh, invested in New York City, but they have now shifted a lot of that investment to uh, Monmouth County, New Jersey, and they're very grateful for your pro-growth leadership uh, wow. in, in places like Asbury Park, that you know was once one of the great cities of of the East Coast and is now back on the rise. We're seeing a lot of great 
uh, towns and cities in New Jersey continue to grow, and uh, it's very exciting to see. John, uh, three quick things. I sent a note to the mayor of Ashbury Park, John Moore, this morning just to check in on them. It's a great community. Secondly, I live in Monmouth County, so thank your in-laws for that. And thirdly, uh, I think we're at long last very close to having a incentives package that's smart, forward-leaning, works for everybody, not just for some, and I think that will spur further development in the state. Yeah, I mean, they're shifting investment to places like Austin, Texas, and Asbury Park, New Jersey, you know, not necessarily Florida and Texas only. They view New Jersey as a place that has a lot of secular factors. It's close to New York City, but also provides uh, a lot of other great benefits to uh, residents and businesses that want to set up there. So Amen. Uh, very exciting time to be involved with the state of New Jersey. I want to talk about uh, Vice President Biden or now President-elect Biden. Uh, you know, I view you guys in somewhat of a similar light in that you're deal makers. You know, you're very good at getting in the room and convincing people uh, to come up with common sense solutions. What do you expect the Biden administration to prioritize in its first 100 days? And if you were the policy czar, let's say, in the Biden administration, what would you push the administration to focus on early on? So I'll leave aside foreign policy for a second, John, in answering this, because uh, among other things, we just, Anthony and I just talked about that, but obviously strengthening our alliances would be high on the list, but I'll put that aside. Uh, the, the president-elect and I had a good conversation on Saturday night, so a couple of nights ago. I think there are three big ones, it seems to me, get a hold of the pandemic with that consistent national set of policies and, and, uh, and, and talking points, this is what we're gonna do, this is what we're about, values-based. So pandemic, federal stimulus, I think no matter what happens between now and January 20, I was just on the phone with Speaker Pelosi, um, and again, I, I'll, I'll take anything right now, and I applaud the folks trying to get a deal done, but no matter what it is, it's gonna be only a fraction of what we're gonna need. So if it's 900 billion, it's, you know, we're gonna need two or three times that. So stimulus, and I think thirdly, infrastructure. Uh, President Trump or President-elect Trump, when he came in, he wasn't my guy, but I said, listen, the one area uh, which he talks a really strong game where I could see common ground is infrastructure. Unfortunately, that has largely been just that. That's largely been a, a talking piece, it hasn't been a, a big substantive part of his agenda. We, I, I am thankful that he greenlighted a, a, a very big bridge project in New Jersey, which is part of the, the broader gateway project. But I think the Biden administration will get all over infrastructure, all over the entirety of the gateway project, which is a game changer for the Northeast Corridor, including for New Jersey. So that's my big holy trinity putting alliances, foreign policy aside, pandemic, stimulus, infrastructure. So you have a business background. You're a pro-growth progressive. How, how quickly do you expect the economy to start to normalize once the vaccine takes hold? You know, I think we're expecting the vaccine to, to be administered pretty heavily late Q1 into Q2 and into the second half of next year, potentially have a lot of the population vaccinated to the point where we can get back to some level of normalcy. From an economic perspective, what do you expect the economic recovery to look like uh, starting in the second half of next year into the next several years? I will tell you, I was gonna ask Anthony this as well. I'd love yours, and John, your opinion and Anthony's on this. 
I think you see a significant bounce slash spike. If the public health trajectory goes as we're talking about, so everything from very bad couple of months, but vials begin to be delivered next week through broad access to a vaccine by April, May, I think you see a very significant bounce spike up in Q2 and Q3. And I think you probably, you probably then stabilize at some level, which is still, I would guess for a couple of years at least, trying to get back completely on our feet. Um, so again, a, a spike up and then a fairly sort of static period of moderate finding our way that I think could be a couple of years. Can That's we avoid it being K-shaped? You know, there's a lot of talk about a K-shaped recovery. How do we avoid leaving so many more people behind that are already disillusioned and might have led them to vote for someone like President Trump? Yeah, so you need, uh, you need a big, I've said this many times, I'll say it again with you guys, history will not be unkind if we overshoot with federal stimulus. I think it'll be brutally unkind, not just to the historians, but to the individuals if we undershoot. And that includes millions, tens of millions of the folks who voted for President Trump, who deserve a better shake, who deserve a better path forward as workers and as members of working families. Um, I'm a big union guy, I have to say that up front. And I believe that unions, their strength and or diminution correlate almost 100% with the strength of our middle class in our state, in our country. Um, so I think federal stimulus that is not just big in the here and now, but that the federal government plays the right kind of role uh, in, in guiding a better future for those working families, workforce development, increase in minimum wage, um, a, a, a fair deal for our farmers in rural uh, communities. You know, th those are elements of a longer set of policy agenda that I think we need to be all over. You campaigned on the idea of creating a statewide investment bank of sorts. And we actually had a, a SALT Talks panel a few weeks ago with some municipal investing experts who talked about the benefits potentially of creating a sovereign wealth fund type of uh, apparatus at the federal level as well. Just for people who don't understand what that would mean, what would be the benefit of both a state and federal level investment institution that uh, thought about things at a more macro level? Anthony, these questions from John are really good. I just want you to know that. This happens every time, Governor. Everyone's very bored at the beginning, and then yeah. I get to come in and ask the intelligent questions. Let me, let, me tell you, let, me, let me tell you something, Governor. I'm trying to help the kid out, okay? I, mean, look, I know, I know. Look at his haircut. Look at the way he's dressed without the tie. I am trying to help the guy out. You know, I mean, it's you, like you guys, I you guys should I, go on the road. I had, feed him, I had to feed him some of the good stuff, you know. There you go. Keep rubbing it in, John. So listen, I can't speak. Oh, by the way, like at Goldman, bonus season is just around the corner. The kids. Still okay, so this, 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 this explains a lot. I'll be calling um, you, Governor, to discuss his compensation when this is over. There you go. Uh, so, John, I'll speak to the state level. It's the, the public bank is an idea I still like a lot. Uh, in fact, we've had a group that's been a standing commission trying to work through the work the kinks out for over a year at this point. The pandemic has slowed us a little bit. It's more complicated than I ever would have hoped. The place that's done it, and they've done it for over 100 years, is North Dakota, of all places. It doesn't look anything like New Jersey, but this is an idea 
that we love. Uh, it's basically, it's a simple, it's not an anti this or that. It's not a political statement. It's, it's, I, I think it's, it's got, it's, it's filled with a lot of smart logic and it's the following. When folks pay their taxes or they pay their fees, um, if it isn't to a local community bank and we're all in on supporting our local community banks, it inevitably is into one of the big money center banks. The money goes, it sits there, the bank uses it like banks should and have a right to, to then uh, build a, a loan book out of those deposits. Uh, the problem is the money goes out to sit in the deposits. The loan book that is built from those deposits rarely comes close to returning the favor back into lending to projects in New Jersey. Right. And so uh, the idea is a simple one. You, you have a walled off uh, institution that's basic, that's owned by our citizens, by our taxpayers. You load in the deposits and then that bank makes, uh, you know, has a book of business that is lending into small businesses, student loans, which is where the North Dakota uh, experience really uh, uh, was the most impressive and small scale infrastructure. So not big gateway projects, but small community based stuff. I, I, I did love it. I do love it. I, I will always love it. It's harder to get set up for reasons I won't get into, but we still are committed to doing everything we can to at least try to get that done. My last question before we let you go. So obviously the pandemic has created a lot of budgetary challenges at the state and local level uh, that we're going to have to confront as part of these uh, packages that are in Congress right now, these stimulus packages or, or recovery packages. Uh, but there's also things that we can do organically uh, that can help states shore up some of these budget uh, shortfalls. One of them is potentially uh, marijuana legalization. You've been a proponent of legalization of marijuana for recreational purposes. Uh, let's talk about uh, recreational marijuana legalization as well as other things that you think should happen at the state and local level, obviously with federal blessing, uh, to, to help shore up some of these budget shortfalls we're seeing at the state level. Yeah, I'll be brief because I know our, the clock is uh, running yeah. over time. Um, it's something I campaigned on. It's something that we've been trying to get done. And at long last, it's actually happening. I didn't get there, though, because of the budget. I got there because of social justice or social injustice. I inherited a state with the widest white, non-white gap of persons incarcerated in America in the overwhelmingly uh, the biggest reason were low-end drug offenses. So we tried to get it done legislatively, came close, couldn't get it done. We put it on the ballot. It passed overwhelmingly in November, literally Friday. So four days ago, uh, the legislative leadership and I ironed out the last details of the, of the enabling legislation that we need. God willing, that'll get done in the next couple of weeks. We're beginning to set a commission up that will then oversee the beginning of the industry. We've had a very successful uh, three-year run with our medical marijuana industry. It was set up years ago, but it was left to really stagnate. We've, we've grown that aggressively. This commission will oversee both medical and recreational. My guess is mid-summer uh, into the fall, when we'll first start seeing access to this. Uh, we'll address social injustices. We'll control the rules of the game, not criminal interests. Uh, and by the way, to your question, we'll raise some money, revenue for the state, and create a lot of good jobs. So I think it's a win-win-win. 
Well, Governor Murphy, we're very grateful for you taking time out of your day to join us on SALT Talks uh, and, and get the message out about uh, the COVID situation as well as other things you're doing in New Jersey that we think could be adopted at the, at the national level and among other states to increase growth and, and keep people safe. So thank you so much. John, thank you. Anthony, thank you guys very much for having me. A real treat. Governor, all the best. Merry Christmas to you. Happy holidays, everybody. Thank Likewise. you. Likewise. Thanks for coming on. My honor. Thanks for having me.